going to ask you to open up your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 as we continue our study of that uh, epistle. 1 John chapter 3. And uh, before we get started, let's uh, turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord, our God, we uh, have just sung of your great love for us. And Lord, that love being demonstrated and that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And that love is also demonstrated to us in your, in your word, that you have given us your word to instruct us, to teach us, to rebuke us and correct us, and to be the light unto our paths. Oh Lord, we just ask that you would uh, work through your spirit and your word this morning, that you would make your word uh, clear to us, that you would give us listening hearts, hearts tuned to obey, tuned to understand, and Lord God, to, to run the race that you have set before us in a way that glorifies and honors you and brings joy to our souls. Help us this morning to understand this text. In your name we pray, amen. This morning we are going to begin, uh, we are beginning looking at uh, the, really the next paragraph of thought in the Apostle's mind and really uh, in the Holy Spirit's mind, since we know that the scripture is, is not, does not originate with man, but originates with God. And he simply used the uh, apostles and prophets and those who wrote scripture to bring out and reveal to us his word. We have been looking really in the larger sense of, what, of the letter of 1 John is he wants us to be sure of our salvation and he is, he is rallying various truths to that cause to help us understand who we are in Christ. He, he writes so that you might know that you have eternal life. And he gives us various tests, some doctrinal test, some moral test. And this morning we're going to be getting a, looking at a section, uh, a, a section that begins with, uh, looking at the moral side, the moral test of things. And, and the title of this morning's message is that true believers practice righteousness. Now, the flow of thought begins in verse 4 and runs all the way to verse 10. And it was my intention to try to give you a high-level synopsis of that this morning. But true to um, the way God has made me, I can't do that. Um, I got lost in the details. So you're going to um, get verse 4. Um, but but the, that, I want you to understand the, the argument that John provides in this section from, chat, from verse 4 all the way to verse 10. And that John provides us four reasons why all true believers practice righteousness and cannot practice sin. State that again, just, just to be clear. John provides us four reasons why all true believers practice righteousness, that's the positive, and cannot, I didn't say does not, I said cannot practice sin, which the Holy Spirit provides us in order to help us recognize. These instructions or these, these uh, reasons are provided by the Holy Spirit to help us recognize children of God from children of the devil. See, the, see in this section, we're going to see John divide up, really the Holy Spirit divide everybody in the world, all of humanity, into two camps. Those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. How do we recognize it? How do we know where we're even at? That's the point at which John is writing. Remember, the overall view 
is to help you understand where you are at. If you fail the test, there's still positive news in that there's time to repent and believe that the Lord might bring you to faith and forgive your sins. For those who have already repented of their sins and trust in Christ as their Savior, this passage is given to you as a, uh, to bolster your um, confidence and your salvation. This morning, we're going to simply look at the first of those reasons why believers practice righteousness and cannot practice sin, and that is this. True believers practice righteousness and cannot practice sin because the nature of sin is incongruent with their love for God's law. You see, beloved, the nature of sin is incongruent. That that means that it doesn't run with it. In fact, it runs against the believer's love for God's law. They just simply can't exist. A love for God and the practice of sin cannot coexist. These do not intermingle. I guess a good way to think about it is in in light of 1 John 1, 5, where it says that that, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We must understand in the same fashion, in the true believer cannot practice sin. It's like it's like. Uh, darkness in God. It just cannot exist. And John's going to rally quite a bit to his, uh, uh, to help us understand this, rally um, to the defense of of why he says this. Now, let's just read verses 4 to 10. I want you to get the kind of a big picture in mind before we start digging into some of the details. 1 John chapter 3, verse, beginning at verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother." Beloved, we live in an age today where people are very autonomous. And that has always been true. But the Lord said in his word that in the end times, the love of self will increase. And we really see that increasing in kind of a snowball fashion. Quickly, our culture has changed from asking questions like, what's good for the culture and making laws, determining what's good for the culture, what's good for the nation, what's good for the city, what's good for the community. Now we simply run through one grid. Self-will. Self-determination. I want to determine my life. It's gotten so bad that the kids can even divorce their parents. and they can, they can even sue their parents for an unlawful birth. Basically, uh, because they didn't, they didn't will to, to live. Right? That's how ridiculous this nation is getting. Not just this nation, but the world. 
People want to determine their day of their birth, which they cannot, but they want to. They also want to determine the day of their death through uh, euthanasia or doctor-assisted suicide. But they also want to determine how they live. And then they, on top of that, they don't want anybody to give them any hint that there might be a God who would judge them for how they're living. See, the, the modern trend today, and even within the so-called churches of today, is just to accept people as they are. God accepts people just as they are. Now, we will certainly affirm that there's no prerequisite to the gospel of saving faith except saving faith. When God brings a person to repentance, that's at the moment, a true repentance comes at the moment of faith. There's no works prior to that that are needed. Faith is needed. But at the same time, we must recognize that clearly, that scripture clearly teaches us that while God saves us just as we are, he doesn't leave us just as we are. And that's what our culture seems to want. Even, even go, you know, if you, if you surveyed 10 churches in this community, you're going to find a very high percentage of them talking about just affirming how much God loves them with very little talk of sin or change. And, and the passage that we're dealing with today is a bold confrontation of today's church culture. Because John teaches us with with great certainty and black and white terminology that true believers are those who practice righteousness and that anybody practicing lawlessness is actually of the devil, even if they attend church, even if they're wearing a collar and call themselves a pastor. So let's look at the details of this to, to, to help you understand what's going on with the text. John begins verse 1 with a familiar phrase, and that phrase is this, everyone who. And we've seen this phrase before. We've seen it in verse 3, everyone who, in verse 29 of chapter 2. We see it again, everyone who. It's a term that John uses to put forth a universal principle. He's saying, and he's gonna, he fills it in with different characteristics in each of those verses, but I want you to understand what he's doing. He's painting a picture of, of here is a person who follows a certain pattern, and then he's going to make a declaration about that person. He wants us to understand that there are no special cases. There are no exceptions, not for me, not for you, not for our children, The following principle that he provides for us is true of every single person, whether they claim to be a Christian or not, whether they acknowledge God or not, whether they recognize their sinfulness or not. And John likes to use this this term, everyone who, um, really in contradiction to the probably the false teachers of that time who were claiming some kind of special privilege or esoteric knowledge, that is a a special knowledge that's only available to just a few of of the enlightened quote-unquote people. But that's not what John's doing. He, He is not talking to some special group of people who are in a class of their own. He's talking to everyone. 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 Everyone who 
fits this following description. Verse 4, everyone who practices sin, he said, also practices lawlessness. That's his main argument. And then he adds to that, and sin is lawlessness. But here we need to pay uh, particular attention to the tenses of the verbs that John uses. You know, we believe scripture is inspired by God down to the very letter. So the tenses of the verbs used are extremely important. Um, in some cases, more important than in other passages because the text is so clear. Here's a passage that's frequently often misunderstood by not paying attention to the tenses of the verbs. Literally, John is saying here, when he, when he says everyone who practices sin, he's, he's saying literally all who are doing sin. So the word practice sin used by the New American Standard Version um, is literally, if you go back to the basic Greek term, it's the word doing, doing sin. And that, that word, um, as well as the, the other one, doing lawlessness, so both of those verbs in, in verse 4 are, are prefixed uh, by doing, or the doing sin or doing lawlessness, that both of those are looking at the present tense. The first verb, doing, when it talks about doing sin, it's a present tense participle which emphasizes the ongoing description. It helps, basically the participle helps describe the characteristic of the person. So the emphasis is not necessarily on the action of sinning, but it's on the character of the person who sins. That is their description. That is an apt characterization of that person. It is, it is an accurate description of that person. That person is sinning. And it's given just in that continual sense the second verb, when we talk about lawlessness, the second verb doing is also in a present tense. It's in the present tense indicative, which, which indicates that, the, the pres- again, present action is described. In both cases, John is using the present tense to describe something that is to, uh, ongoing, to emphasize what we could call a durative or a continuous or ongoing action. John doesn't say everyone who commits sin also commits lawlessness. He doesn't say that. He says everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Or everyone who does sin also does lawlessness. The the English Standard Version draws out the meaning nicely with, with the translation everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Again, the, the, the translation is worded there to help you understand that this is something that is ongoing. It's durative. It's lasting. They're, the person is characterized by this. And it's one of the reasons why if you have a, a King James Version or a New King James Version, if you read that, you're going to be a little bit misled here because the King James Version, New King James Version, says this, it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Now, the way that's worded, it, it would lead the typical reader to believe that John is talking about a single instance of sin. But he's not. It's very clear in this case, this is something progressive. It's ongoing. It's not the single instance of sin. It's the characteristics. It's their lifestyle. It's what's going on day in and day out. I might add a a good way to think about this. 
It's the persons whose sin is unbroken by true repentance. It's unbroken. As we'll see later, we'll get to this, but with with a believer, though they sin, though we sin, we know that to be a reality in our lives, with a true believer, that sin is broken by true repentance. But with those whose lifestyle is that of practicing sin that John describes, it's ongoing. It doesn't stop. Now, when I say it doesn't stop, I'm not saying that the person sins like every minute of their lives or that they're as bad as they could be. But that's the pattern of their life is that they sin. And even when they do the right things from a human perspective, they do it with all the wrong motives. And so it's still sin before God. But understand that it's, it's, it's not the person's, like in this case, the, the, the term practice here is useful for helping us to understand this, this ongoing nature. The person could do things from time to time that are helpful. And John's not saying that, that, that the person here who is characterized by, by doing sin, it's just merely that, that they're good, their doing of good doesn't outweigh they're doing of sin. It's really that they're, that they're continually to, to pursue sin. That it's unbroken. The path of their life, the pattern of their life is that of practicing sin. So understand that. Understand that John is not talking about the, like the, the point failure of sin. What we call a punctiliar point in your life. It's, it's your life of a Christian is disrupted by a sin. Here we're talking about the pattern. And what John is telling us is that is that pattern. If the pattern of a person's life is that of practicing sin, they are practicing lawlessness. And as we'll see in, in a minute, as I bring to your attention, that it's inconsistent with the life of a true believer and cannot actually be. It's not only inconsistent, it's impossible in the life of a true believer. Now, I want us to understand a little bit about what words John is using here. He's saying everyone who practices sin also practices what? term is lawlessness. So let's look at a minute. Let's look at these words a minute. Sin is the Greek word harmatia. This this literally means a missing of the mark. It is a very common word used, um, you know, in Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. Um, uh, Sorry, Romans 6.23. But even Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the word sin there is that missing the mark. It's the common term there. And as Vine's Expository Dictionary explains, this is the most comprehensive term for moral obliquity. And, and moral obliquity basically is, is defined as um, it, it's related to the word oblique, ge- geometrical term oblique. It's any deviation from moral rectitude or sound thinking. Even, even Webster's a, a secular dictionary says that. Any deviation from moral rectitude. It, basically, it's anything that's not parallel with God's righteousness. If it doesn't align with God's righteousness, then it's sin. And it, this is just a big, big, all-encompassing word for anything that doesn't align with what is right in God's sight. So John uses here an intentionally broad term. It, it's the most comprehensive term for, for uh, speaking about deviations from God's will in, in the Bible. So we can say from this sense, John is describing any and all sin. He's lumping all sins, every sin, into this category. 
He's, he's not giving us like uh, delineations of different kinds of sin. There are some people when they approach this passage in 1 John 3 who try to separate sins between those that are small and really kind of they would consider unimportant and those who are more important and damning. And, and some, some churches, such as the Catholic Church, would, would use terms like uh, venial and mortal. And venial are the ones that, you know, they're bad, but you know, they're not going to send you to hell. Uh, the mortal sins will send you straight to hell. So um, that's not what John is saying. He's lumping every sin. The sin of a bad attitude and the sin of killing. Right? It's not that they carry equal consequences, but they, when legal standing before God, they're all sin. They're all lumped into this category. It's the same way of thinking about um, being a, a, a lawbreaker. Right? You can drive 80 miles an hour um, right here on Medina Road where it's, say, 40 miles an hour, and you're obviously breaking the law. But you're also breaking the law when you drive 41 miles an hour and the speed limit's 40. And again, the consequences, not the same, right? The one might get you sent to jail. The other one probably won't even get you a ticket, right? But the point of it is that I'm making is it's still, you're still a lawbreaker when you exceed the speed limit, as benign and as that is in our times. But that's, that's what John is saying. He's saying all sin is in this category of basically not aligning with God's will. In other words, there's nothing outside this, this big bucket that he's giving us. And he's taking this big bucket, and he's, he's saying um, everyone who practices sin, and that's, that's everything that deviates from God's will, also practices lawlessness. So he's taking this big bucket term, and he's turning and using a very strong term. Now, the term lawlessness literally is the Greek word anomia, right? And the reason I'm not doing this just to, to show I can pronounce Greek words. I want, you to, I want you to understand this. Nomia is the Greek word for law. Anomia adds the Greek negation to that, anomia. So literally, this means no law. We still use the Greek terms. You may not realize it, but the term atheist comes from the Greek, Theist, person who believes in God. Atheist, person who doesn't believe in God. We talk about morals, someone who's moral and amoral. Right? We stick the A in front of it, it negates that. Well, the same thing here with anomia. So at its root, this term means without law or no law. But the biblical term is descriptive of so much more than just someone living without the law of God in their life. John uses the word law here in a very general sense. He is not, I should say, while John is using the term law here in a very general sense, he is not talking about a specific law like the Mosaic law. This is pointing us to the, to the law of God written upon every human heart. The term lawlessness it is not just this big bucket term. It is a very sinister term. It is a term with sinister activity, it's, it's not simply ignorance of the law or living outside the law. The term lawlessness means to live in defiance of the law, which is a much stronger term than the general word of sin. 
Um, pastor and commentator Donald Burdick explains this way. He says, sin means a missing of the mark, a failure to hit at that which one has aimed. It is the general word for sin of any kind. Lawlessness, however, is a stronger term, referring not merely to the absence of law, but to the purposeful disregard of the law. Sin, then, is not merely a failure to measure up or a weakness. It is an active and purposeful refusal to conform to law. The principle of sin is in reality the principle of lawlessness, the repudiation of the expressed will of God, unquote. And another commentator adds that lawlessness includes the idea of rebellion or revolt. So what John is saying, he's, he's, he's using this big bucket terminology and saying anyone who, who sins, and he gives that big bucket terminology for sin, also practices utter rebellion. Even the small, what we would consider, humanly speaking, small sins, fit into this category. And this is true of every sin, beloved. Every sin at the heart of it has rebellion against God. If you're a believer here today, that, that should resonate in our lives that when we sin, though we do not want to sin, when we do sin, it is utter rebellion to God. When you lose your temper with your spouse, it's rebellion to God. When you lose your temper with your children, it's rebellion to God. Right? When we don't believe and act of faith, when we do things that are not of faith, that's of sin. That is rebellion to God. And, and John is using this very strong terminology to prove his point. And, and what is that point? Every sin, by nature, is rebellion against God. It's rebellion. And that's why he adds in verse 4, sin is lawlessness. That big bucket term, every single, everything that fits into that, and every sin does fit into that, it's like standing in the face of God with your fist raised at him and even doing what the soldiers did to Christ on the cross, spitting in his face and slapping him. That is revolting to my soul, and it should be to yours as well if you're a true believer. That's why John is using this to show that no true believer has a pattern of life that's like that. It's impossible. In this passage, the Holy Spirit is teaching us that, that the practice of sin is the practice of lawlessness. And it's interesting here, uh, again, in, in, in the Greek, when we read everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Again, to, to further emphasize that John's not looking at, at point failures. He's not looking at point, uh, points of rebellion, but looking at a lifestyle or a continuing uh, lifestyle of rebellion is the fact that the word sin and the word lawlessness are prefixed in the Greek by the by the definitive article the. So it, it it doesn't read well in English, and so we don't translate it this way. But literally, it says the one who practices the sin also practices the lawlessness, and the sin is the lawlessness. What what is he doing? He's 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 putting these in a class. And he is, he is he in a class by themselves and saying that's the pattern, the lawlessness. It's actually, if you look at it in an ultimate sense, the righteousness points to what? The righteousness of God. He is the standard. And the other is the lawlessness. What lawlessness? The lawlessness 
of the devil. He is the standard for that. So you understand why John's saying these two things can't exist. You cannot have a pattern of lawlessness, the lawlessness, lawlessness of the devil, and at the same time be a believer in God. They can't coexist. They just can't. Now, beloved, understand why God hates sin. Because every sin is a rebellion against him. And if God were to judge us for that, for our sin, with no redemption, he would be perfectly just and right. But God loves to forgive and redeem. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. And so he is in the process of drawing people to himself. His his love for the lost, his love for rebels like you and me is, is evident throughout Scripture. I want to read to you Micah 7.18. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Just listen. The prophet says this. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? Now he's talking about Israel and Israel's rebellion and how the Lord was, was overlooking, passing over the rebellious act. They deserve judgment. They deserve death. But he was passing over that for the time being that he might work in their lives that he might later bring about their redemption, but he hadn't given up on them totally. Romans, uh, Romans, Paul speaks about that in Romans, about the future of Israel, but it applies to us as well. He passes over our rebellious acts that he might work in us his, his grace and his, uh, to draw us to himself. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. The prophet Joel in chapter 2, verse 13 says this, talking about repentance. Rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, true repentance isn't just the external, it's internal. And he says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. In other words, he, he doesn't bring judgment like, like we deserve when we turn to him in faith for forgiveness. You see, beloved, we were just like this. If we, if we think for a moment, um, relate this, some of what we're saying, relate this to what uh, Paul has told us. In Ephesians chapter 2, I'm just going to read some of that to you. Ephesians chapter 2, you can turn there or just listen along as I read to you. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul tells us this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So I'll pause there. That aligns with what John's saying. That all people are either children of God or children of the devil. And what Paul is saying is all of us were originally children of the devil. Right? That's, that's, the, that's what he was saying. We were, we were dead spiritually to God. And we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. So that's who we took our orders from before we became uh, believers. And, and Paul adds this in Ephesians 2, 3. He says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And he adds, by grace you have been saved. 
And God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in this heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's Paul's way of describing what John is describing in our passage in that, in that those who, who walk, true believers are going to walk, or pract- walk in righteousness or practice righteousness. Those who practice lawlessness are not truly saved. God loves to save and redeem rebels. Again, this is emphasized by another passage from Paul in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, just beginning at verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we will exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we will also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, you could add in there, yet rebels, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For, while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So I wanted to read those lengthy passages to help you understand the heart of God and what he is doing in his children. He is drawing them out. They were rebels. We were rebels. If you have exercised faith in Jesus Christ, you were a rebel, an enemy of God. And if you have exercised faith, you are no longer his enemy. You are his child. And he has given you forgiveness and he has given you redemption and he has given you of the riches in Christ Jesus and brought you into his family. Now, having done that, could you someone who really understands that thing, could you really turn your back on all that and establish a pattern of sinfulness, of wanton rebellion against God? The answer is no. Now, you might say, well, we've seen people like that. I know people that used to be on fire for God, the term is, or they made a profession of faith, they, and they, for a time they lived like they were Christians. But the pattern of their life currently shows them to be an unbeliever. So they were never truly converted. They just gave false fruit like they were saved. But the pattern of their life reveals them to be not a believer. You you cannot truly understand the grace of God and what he has done and then just blatantly turn your back on him and walk in sin, a pattern of sin, with no regret, with, with no remorse, with no repentance. May it never be. Paul would use his strongest terminology there. May it never be. It cannot be. 
Now, beloved, I'm not saying Christians cannot sin. I am not saying, neither is Paul. More importantly, it's not what I say, but what the scriptures say. John is not saying that Christians don't sin. Remember, we, to refresh our memory with what he, what he said in, towards the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. He says, if you say that you don't have sin, you're what? You call that a liar. You're a liar. So he's not making the case for perfectionism, as it is known by some. But, but what he is making the case is, is you cannot have this pattern of sin in your life and truly be a believer. There's just, there's just no way. The reason is because when God brings new life, he brings love for him. And that love for him is manifested by a love for his word. You show me someone who reads the word of God, not because it's on their checklist, but because they want to, and I'll show you a true believer. You show me someone who doesn't read the word of God at all, yet claims to be a believer, and I'll say that person is an unbeliever, with the rare exception of those who might be unable to read that themselves. But they're still going to long to hear it. They're going to put themselves in a place where they can hear the word of God. They're going to put themselves with someone and say, please read this to me. And that happens sometimes. Those who are are getting older and, and dying and they cannot read, they'll say, please read scripture to me. A great ministry to those who cannot read or those who are too sick to read. It's just the reading of Scripture. But we must understand, and, and, and here's, here's where John's logic flows, is that those who love God also love His Word. Uh, we see this throughout Scripture. Just to point to some Old Testament Scriptures to, to reinforce this. Uh, Deuteronomy 11.1 1 says, uh, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. You notice how the love of God is tied to the keeping of his word, of obedience. And in order to obey the word, you must know the word. Or there's Joshua 22.5, where the command there is, only be very careful to observe the commandment and law which Moses, the servant of God, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, And to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, with everything you have. The the heart of the true believer is expressed to us in Psalm 119. I'll just read to you some of the verses. Psalm 119, verse 97. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 113, 113 says, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. Psalm 119, verse 140. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. Psalm 119, verse 163 says, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law because it's true and right. Psalm 119, verse 165 says, Those who love your law have great peace. And nothing causes them to stumble. Now, we know, I know there's times in your life where you absolutely love the Word of God. You may not love it like that all of the time. But at the heart of it, every true believer loves the Word of God. And Psalm 19 tells us why. Why, why do believers love the Word? Because the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
And it continues, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? The psalmist prays, acquit me of hidden faults, and keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, and then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. The psalmist knows the impact that the word of God has on his life, that they are food for his soul, that they will keep him back from sins, that they will expose the sins in his life, the the faulty thinking, the rebellious thinking, the rebellious actions. And and John, even John connects um, our love for God with our love for his word. In 1 John 2, verse 5, John says this, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And, and with that, look at just right there in your text, the first verse of, of 1 John 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we could be called children of God, and such we are. Not, not such we will become if we act righteous enough. Okay? This, isn't, this isn't you making yourself righteous. This is the Lord making you righteous. He is calling you His children. And that's why he says in verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And, and this is the, because all sin is lawless rebellion against God, that's the first reason that, that John gives us why true believers practice righteousness and cannot practice sin. The nature of sin is too egregious for true believers to have, an, have that unbroken pattern of sin in their life. It just cannot be. And, and John makes that very, very clear. And, and I'll just point to verse 9. We're going to get to explain it in a minute. But notice there at the end of verse 9, he says, he cannot sin. No one who is born of God practices sin, and he cannot sin. And that's why I'm using such strong language. It's not that, that he just would not sin or doesn't want to sin. It's that he cannot practice sin. Again, remembering the ongoing pattern of, of sin in a person's life, that it's unbroken by true repentance. I'm not saying it's, the person isn't, isn't in the flesh remorseful or that they don't um, go talk to a priest and kind of confess their sins to the priest, which does absolutely nothing because only God can forgive sins. It's not that people don't feel bad about their sins, but it's the same kind of remorse uh, that Judas Iscariot had. Judas Iscariot regretted what he did. He had remorse, but he didn't have repentance. And that that describes the the characteristic between a true believer, a child of God, and a child of the devil. Anyone who practices sin, John says, is very clearly not saved. Why is he mentioning this? Because those false teachers who had gone out from the church were claiming to have some special knowledge. They were claiming to know God, and he deals with that in the next verse. He, he really uh, uh, tackles that um, about um, in verse 6 about knowing God or seeing him. But, but these people claimed special knowledge to know God, but their lives were a train wreck. Their lives were an absolute train wreck. They were living in wanton sin, and they were making the claim that it just simply didn't matter. And beloved, that's so much like today's church 
you know, by and large, today's church is a train wreck, a theological train wreck. And people's lives are all messed up um, because the church is not teaching the truth. It's not teaching the truth about sin and the necessity to repent of sin for true saving faith. You have so many churches today embracing the world's standard of what is right and wrong. Beloved, I emphasize today and I emphasize and will emphasize again, God loves sinners. But when he saves them, he doesn't leave them just as they are. There is no way. To say anything different is a lie from the pit of hell. It really is. All these churches that are preaching that God loves you just as you are and come as you are and, yeah, no need to repent of your sin. And, oh, yeah, we, you know, they even redefine sin to be something egregious. You know, everything the Bible says is sin is not sin according to them. That, those are just lies. Understand, those are, those are temples of Satan. They're synagogues of Satan. They're, they're not true houses of worship. Right? There might be some true believers among them. But they are instruments of Satan to lead people astray. He is a master of deception and the the father of all lies. And he is very successful leading people astray, which is why we must stick to his word. His word will guide us. His word will not lead us astray. His word will will never lie to us. So I think as we we dig into this passage, beloved, you're going to be encouraged because you, you have wrestled with sin. You wrestle with sin every day, just like I do. And if you're a true believer, you hate that sin. And if you misunderstand this passage, you come away doubting your salvation because you still sin. It's part of your life. But if we rightly understand this passage, we come away with the assurance that anyone whose life is characterized by righteousness is truly born of God. And we'll see more reasons why, why John says this in such strong language. Anyone who practices sin is not saved, but the positive side is any who practicing righteousness, truly practicing righteousness, are God's children. And we can, we can be assured of that. And that's the whole reason that John is, is writing that. Well, let's, let's pray together. Our Lord God, we want to thank you for giving us your word and for providing a passage like this to challenge our thinking about sin, that we would not come, become complacent about sin, but also to assure us that, that though your children commit acts of sin, they cannot have a pattern of sin because of your work within them. And as we saw from this passage, because of the, because of the nature of sin itself, Lord God, Thank you for being patient with us that though we sin as believers and that is rebellion against you, you you have graciously forgiven that in Christ our Lord and are patient with us in transforming us and sanctifying us. And we rejoice in the truths of of 1 John 3 that, that when we see you, we will be made to be like you. The sin will be gone. The rebellion will be totally gone. We just thank you, Lord God, for giving us of your Holy Spirit to change us, transform us, to regenerate us, and and to give us the love of God, which prohibits us running in, uh, in in the pattern 
of unrighteousness in the pattern of practicing sin. Thank you, Lord God, for your power which mightily works within us. And just pray that you will mightily work within the people here this morning to conform us to your image and help us to walk in obedience to the truth. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.